This week's episode of The Weeds is brought to you by Club W. Really cool service. You know, get wine on the internet. Right now, Club W is offering listeners 50% off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash weeds. This week's episode of The Weeds is also brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds to take advantage of free streaming of, of course, the fundamentals of photography. The following podcast contains explicit language. Okay. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, with me as usual, my colleagues Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein. I don't think this is just another episode of The Weeds. Well, this is it's an a very Iowa special. caucus yeah. special. Iowa apocalypse. Yes, in which Ezra has asked us to abandon all of the sort of underlying premises of the show. And, it is in- incredible how quickly I sell out for news. And really just focus in on the news of the day. I knew Ezra <laughs> Klein when he liked policy. <laughs> <laughs> right. Horse race politics that have occurred recently is really what this show is all about. Um, so we're here to talk about it. Well, I guess you have two different horse races, right? Right. So I, I want to put a framing thought on the discussion. And I'm not even going to try to defend myself against these scurrilous attacks. It's going to be very important for policy who wins the presidential election, though, for the, for the record. I think we should talk first about the Democrats and then about the Republicans. But But as a frame... Imagine going back to 2012 and saying to the heads of the Democratic and Republican parties that in 2016, in the Democratic Party, Hillary Clinton would tie Bernie Sanders, the independent socialist from Vermont, and that in the Republican Party, the rankings would be Ted Cruz followed by Donald Trump followed by Marco Rubio. Party leadership would have laughed at you. And then if you could have possibly convinced them what you were telling them was true, they would have thrown themselves off a bridge. It's kind of a party. You were joking. It's Iowa apocalypse. It's kind of a party apocalypse. Like the political parties are in really bad shape in ways that we have discussed at different times during this podcast. But we've never really seen if it would hold through the actual voting or caucusing. And now we have seen and now we have seen it holds through. And I think Matt wrote a really good piece at the wee hours of – Tuesday morning. Content never sleeps. Content never sleeps. Matt is a baby. Matt never sleeps. I really liked his point about how the Democrats kind of set themselves up for the situation where they wanted to set themselves up for a really strong election. So they essentially edged out Elizabeth Warren, edged out anyone who might kind of try and take the Hillary vote. And now they have the Hillary vote and it's not as strong as they thought. So it's not just, you know, some outside magical reckoning that the Democrats are dealing with. They took a particular approach to avoid like a Trump-like figure. They seemed like they really wanted to not have a heavily contested primary. And who is they here? Let's just, let's just be so, clear I mean, in our terms. So we're talking, you know, it's it's hard to be incredibly precise right. about these kind of things. But the people who donate large sums of money to the Democratic Party, the people who bundle contributions, the sort of high-level, well-respected political operatives, the leaders of major interest groups, the members of Congress who are well-known and well-respected, even if they're not necessarily 
charismatic, I'm going to run for president types, they really coalesced in 2016 in a way that they didn't in 2008. And you saw this in, so like Joe Biden, right, kept sort of floating Joe Biden trial balloons and ultimately said that he wasn't running out of considerations related to his family. And of course, there's some truth to that. But the the other truth to it is that if you're the incumbent vice president of the United States, you don't run an insurgent presidential campaign. You just don't. And Biden was facing a situation where there were not senior Democrats, senior Democrat-aligned interest group leaders who were saying, we got to get Biden in this thing. High-level aides to the Obama administration were not jumping out to form pro-Biden super PACs, right? The decision was made by sort of the collective powers that be that Clinton was going to win and that it was in the best interest of everybody to sort of bandwagon around that. You know, so you saw no institutional support going to Martin O'Malley, and you saw not Elizabeth Warren, who there had been a lot of buzz about, who a lot of people, I think, considered someone who you could really imagine winning the nomination, but she didn't get in it, right? And so it was left to Bernie Sanders, who is a... I don't want to be be disrespectful about Sanders, especially given how well he's done now, but he's a, a gadfly figure who had not been— Or at least even, had been a gadfly right. figure, right? He was considered in the Democratic Party to not be serious competition to Hillary Clinton. They were clearly wrong about that, but that was what they believed. Well, and he had not been—I mean, he's been in Congress for 25 years, right? So it's not like a, an unknown quantity or really even an outsider, right? He's someone who's been on Capitol Hill. He's been working with people, and he's never in all that time really been a— like a factional leader. There haven't been a lot of Bernie Sanders followers, a lot of Bernie Sanders troops. He's been a, a character who I think liberal people sort of like and admire and appreciate what he does, but he never seemed like a real power player in the way that Warren, who'd been newer on the scene, had immediately sort of like made waves, picking fights with the Obama administration, you know, like upturning deals, things like that. So Sanders just did not seem like a really, really meaningful kind of competition. But there's a a sort of a a problem in that, which is that, you know, once you kind of decide as a a collective establishment that you're going to get all the viable contenders out of the race, now it turns out you have a pretty strong contender, but he's really not someone who national Democrats can like envision being the nominee. It's not just that he isn't the first choice. It's that, you know, he's not in the whole list of potential people. He's like not really the second choice, the third choice, something like that. People just don't think that, you know, he's labeled himself as a socialist. He's he's quite old. Uh, he- an- another version of this is if I could jump in, I think, is that Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders don't believe radically different things about politics at all. I think if you look at their voting records, they're very similar. If you look at what kinds of policies they support, they're very similar. But national Democrats, sort of party elites, are comfortable with Elizabeth Warren in a way they're not with Bernie Sanders. They could envision Elizabeth Warren being their party's nominee in a way – and that being you know potentially a perfectly plausible candidacy – in a way that they would not say that for for Bernie Sanders, even though, again, the underlying ideology, socialist labels aside, is not markedly different. Anyway, so it just means that they're left with – it still seems, I would say, 
prohibitively likely that Clinton is going to prevail against Sanders. But it's certainly not unquestionable that Sanders could win at this point. I mean, you know, you've got a tie. Uh, he's probably going to win New Hampshire. You know, the odds are, I, I think his campaign would tell you that they are still the underdogs in this race. But they are making a race of it that she has to worry about. She's got to work and actually uh, do the stuff to try to win, to try to beat him. But it's really, you know, a, a situation where Democrats, national Democrats are going to say, well, you know, if Sanders gets it, like, that's fine. It, it really upends their plans in part because Democrats don't have anything beside the White House. They're not in a position where they can even say uh, – interest group leaders can even say, well, you know – our nominee is going to be who it is. If it's someone who's a little bit more left wing, you know, that may be an electability challenge. But on the other hand, we get to fight for what we really believe in. And we have this like plan B and plan C and plan D. There's no plan B. If they don't hold the White House, they have the state of California <laughs> and the state of Vermont. Well, and it's like even worse than that. They don't even have like an obstructionist role that's like very easy to play. Because if you're looking at like a Congress controlled by Republicans and a Republican president who's going to be likely appointing some Republican Supreme Court. Supreme Court. Republican, yeah. So I was going to say a president is appointing some justices. Like, at least the Republicans in the latter part of the Obama era have been able to, like, kind of hold the line a little bit and, like, stop Obama from doing the things he wants to do. But that gets a little more difficult if you don't have, like, just one pressure point. And like you said, the state legislatures, that hasn't been a place where Democrats have played. They just keep losing state <laughs> legislatures. So, like, Medicaid doesn't get expanded. Reproductive health stuff keeps – abortion keeps getting more restricted. There's no locus. And there could be some big policy changes if Republicans want to push those through that they could more realistically achieve because there's no one – kind of as a backstop as there has been in the last six years or so of politics. So I want to back out of this a little bit into a question of which interpretation do you all take? So one interpretation here is that Bernie Sanders is an incredibly strong candidate. The Democratic Party's miscalculation was to not realize what a sort of political phenomenon he really was. That he has an authenticity. He has a message. He has a kind of personal purity that really appeals to people at a moment when they have come to, to deeply mistrust American politics. And that in that way, he's a lot like Obama was in 2008, a, a sort of a political superstar who is mounting a really, really powerful challenge to the the assumed juggernaut just by sheer dint of political talent and man matching the moment, right? So that, that I think is one argument around this. Another is that what you're seeing is a deep weakness in Hillary Clinton's candidacy, that Hillary Clinton herself just isn't that good of a candidate, that in 2008, she lost to Barack Obama. In 2016, all of a sudden, she's struggling with Bernie Sanders. She's being dogged by these emails that, you know, now there's this talk of that she can't get the State Department to release. She has very, very low public ratings on honesty and trustworthiness. And I think if you go into the numbers on the sort of 50-50 tie we see in Iowa, there are worrying portents for her just in the demographics. Bernie Sanders won roughly 85 percent of Democratic caucus goers under the age of 30. Young people are a really important constituency for Democrats. And, and now in two subsequent elections, Hillary Clinton has proven a really – it has proven a real challenge for Clinton to, to appeal to them. And I mean just broadly, I would say impressionistically, there are not – speeches Hillary Clinton is giving that are sort of packing arenas and that get, are getting played all over the news. She's just not a kind of inspirational candidate in terms of her 
oratory in terms of this sort of political history she brings to bear that, you know, Obama was and that, that, that maybe Sanders appears in ways to be. Now, it, it's worth saying that it doesn't seem like it had to be this way. Hillary Clinton would be, for instance, the first woman president of the U.S., which is a huge fucking deal. But somehow she's not been able to persuade much of the Democratic Party that that is a historic campaign they can they can feel proud of being a part of. And so I think like it's I think it's actually very important which of these stories you buy because if the answer here is Bernie Sanders is an unbelievable candidate in ways and for reasons which much of the political class didn't expect, I think one that that means you don't worry as much about Hillary Clinton's candidacy even if she wins and two it means maybe you take the possibility that Sanders could surprise in a general election more seriously than you did before. But if you think what is happening here is that we're seeing for a second time now that Hillary Clinton is actually not that good of a candidate that she's just been in politics so long, she's so compromised by her affiliations There's so many whiffs of scandal and transactional politics around her that she has so much trouble exciting very important Democratic constituencies that she's just vulnerable to all kinds of different challengers. Then the Democratic Party kind of needs to be in panic mode. And just last thing I'll say on this before before turning it over to you guys is – Something I think is really interesting about Sanders' 50-50 tie here is that if you compare the role he had to what Obama had to work with in 08, he was in much weaker shape. Hillary Clinton began this election much, much more dominant in the polls even than she was before the 2008 election. She had a much bigger lead. Barack Obama had much more institutional Democratic support. He was encouraged by party leaders to run for president. He had a good number of congressional and important Democratic endorsements. He had a lot of money, not just excited small donors, but institutional money. He had real interest group support. And he was also working off of the Democratic Party divisions on Iraq, which were a really serious fissure in the Democratic Party. So he had a directional difference from Hillary Clinton on policy that, that Sanders really doesn't have in at least his big ways. And so... I think you could really give an explanation of Obama's candidacy about why he was able to to beat Hillary in Iowa that, you know, Sanders, I think also just, you know, in my view, is not as much a generational political phenom as Obama was. And so the fact that he's done as well as he has against Clinton, I think, should make somebody rationally question Clinton's capacity as a candidate. So I think of those two versions, I lean, I would say it's it's both, which is like not a satisfying answer, but one we end up a lot with in policy. But I lean a little bit towards the first one that I think looking back, myself included, that we underestimated the Sanders candidacy. One of the things that Sanders talks about a lot in his campaign is like this does need for political revolution, that we really need to change things. We don't just need to build on the insurance system we have right now. We need to blow it up and build an insurance plan that's run by the government. We need to make college free. And we actually decided to test out, and Bernie has this thesis, that there's this undercurrent of the silent majority of people who believe these ideas, who think these things are true. They're not the ones on cable news, but they're out there in the electorate somewhere. So we actually, Andrew Prokop and Morning Consult, a polling firm we work with, decided to run a poll on some of these questions and see, like, is this Bernie thesis True. And it finds I was surprised in the level of support that we saw. For example, we saw six in 10 of the people we polled said political revolution might be necessary to protect liberties and half agree that political revolution might be necessary to redistribute money, which suggests a shocking (laughs) openness to political revolution. Of all kinds and for all kinds of reasons. Of all kinds, you know, half support making college free. I guess that's not super surprising because 
free college sounds great. I'm really uh-huh. someday we need to talk about the fact that it's not free. Okay, right. <laughs> we'll get Libby day. Nelson on here to <laughs> to talk about that. So I, I someone th- is paying. I think that's one of even the if it's a good idea. He tapped into in a way that was underestimated. That he had an insight that is seeming to be at least partially true. And like you mentioned, Ezra really resonated among young people. One thing I wanted to add. So you mentioned that 84 percent of young Democrats in Iowa supported Sanders in the caucus. That actually blows Obama's numbers out of the water. He was at 57 percent in 2008. Huh. I didn't know that. He had way more competition. You know, Edwards was taking some of the votes. I was looking. Surprisingly, Bill Richardson was taking some of the youth demographic in 2008. (laughs) The Bill Richardson juggernaut. Yeah, the Bill Bros, you might call them. The support among young adults, it's really, there's no other demographic like it. If you look at gender, like if you look at religion on the Republican side, you look at education, it is just such a massive split. You don't see any other demographic you splice it on where it's over 80% for one candidate. And I think that really speaks to something going on here. You know, when you were talking about, is it Hillary that's just a bad candidate? One of the things I remember from 2008, I wrote an essay for Newsweek when I, this was, I think, it was my first year out of college about, I think the title of it was Sorry, Hillary, Girls Already Rule. And the thesis of it, which actually you could update for today, <laughs> was just the the idea of a female president isn't as exciting because of all the leadership roles that women have taken on, that it doesn't seem as exciting to young millennials who have been the presidents of their student unions or have done all these exciting things. The idea of a female president doesn't seem as exciting to young voters as we might expect it to. But then you have, you know, Sanders, a 74-year-old socialist who clearly is doing something to excite young voters in a way that even Obama was not able to do. Yeah, I mean, this is what I think is is really striking, is that I think this is neither a story about Hillary Clinton's particular weaknesses as a politician and not really a story about Sanders' strengths, but actually just about how left-wing younger people and especially the remaining young white people who are Democrats are just very left-wing ideologically. And I think that that is something that was often misconstrued. I think that when Obama carried the youth vote against Hillary Clinton, there was a lot of perception and commentary that this was largely about the fact that Obama was the cooler persona than Hillary Clinton was. And we got a lot of sort of takes about where young women stood that a lot were focused on this question of like who who or what is like more exciting and visions of change. And so I think when you have Bernie Sanders, who is clearly not cool, you know, slotted into that role. Hillary is old and Sanders is older. And there's nothing hip about Sanders. And the Clinton campaign... He, he is the norm core candidate, too. Oh, He's so unhip, it's hip, actually. But the, the, the Clinton campaign invested very heavily in female-targeted youth culture outreach. You know, they had her, like, go to the set of Broad City and, like, hang out with the stars of that show and do this, like, yes, Hillary t-shirt and Katy Perry stumped for her in Iowa, you know. So they they very clearly had it in their minds that, like, okay, they got outcooled by Barack Obama and they were maybe going to get beaten with younger men by Bernie Sanders. And there was a lot of investment, informal investment by the Sanders campaign in this concept of Bernie bros, quote unquote, and then direct investment by the campaign in affiliating Hillary with younger pop culture women 
figures and, and really trying to sort of make that happen. And it, it didn't work for them because it turned out that the reason young people voted for Obama, the reason young people vote for Democrats over Republicans and the reason young people vote for Bernie Sanders over Hillary Clinton is young people are just really left wing in their convictions on core political issues. And that is a strength that the Democratic Party has been hoping to deploy in elections. They think accurately that old people are more likely to die than young people. And so as time goes on, this youth support will help Democrats more and more. But you're seeing with Sanders that the substantive political convictions of younger people, particularly younger people who are more educated, more engaged with the process, are going to push the party toward positions that are more left-wing than where they are comfortable being. And I feel like this this movement that we're having, it strikes me as comparable. I don't know that, that he'll win, but it's somewhat comparable to the, the Barry Goldwater phenomenon in the early 60s, where essentially the, the proposition that Sanders is putting on the table is that the Democratic Party should be an ideological left-wing political party comparable to a European Social Democratic Party and not be the kind of centrist interest group brokerage political party that the Democrats have traditionally been. Paul Polarization isn't new. It's not like it was like invented last year by the Sanders campaign. But he is putting it on the table in a much more aggressive, straightforward way, trying to say that, look, if you are the left-wing political party, you can't be funded by huge contributions from billionaires. If you're the left-wing political party, your leaders can't be doing paid speeches at major banks. You know, and that kind of stuff, it, it makes sense, right? Like you could imagine a world in which those were the norms, right? That like – the left-wing party has nothing to do with the big business world, and there's no allowed interplay back and forth between those universes. Of course, a person could just defect and say, like, I'm not a Democrat in good standing anymore. I'm going to go be a PR director for Amazon. But that the sort of permeability that exists right now between democratic politics and some aspects of corporate America, you know, wouldn't exist. But the fact is, those aren't the norms Democrats have been playing with, even in the polarized era. And it's going to be very sort of uncomfortable for for Democratic leaders if they have to accommodate themselves to this Sanders-style vision, which I, I don't think they will literally have to do this year. Like, I think they're going to get it together. They're going to they're gonna beat Bernie. But, you know, younger political leaders on Capitol Hill are going to see what Sanders has done and are going to say, you know what? Like, I've got a shot at this, right? Like, Tammy Baldwin could run for president. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries could run for president. There's people who are better positioned than Bernie Sanders to connect with this this younger demographic group. And Sanders has shown that a sort of very strong ideological message has a, a broader constituency than people had previously thought. I mentioned earlier that substantively, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are not far from each other. But as a marketing proposition, Bernie Sanders has a socialist label. And to the people who sort of run the Democratic Party, who are, who are a bit older, that is toxic. It is beyond toxic to them. And it's beyond toxic to them because they remember Cold War politics. They remember the Democratic Party being associated with socialism, which was associated with communism and getting beaten time and time and time and time again over this. I mean, this is part of what Bill Clinton actually ran to, you know, in working with the Democratic Leadership Council, tried to move the Democratic Party away from. 
And one thing I think that is happening with young people is they just do not have those Cold War associations with socialism. Um, I, I think something that Sanders has been very smart about and, and has actually worked, I think, better than a lot of people would have expected is to say that what socialism means today, or at least democratic socialism and the way he's talking about it, is Scandinavia, that the, the association that you should have with this is Sweden or Denmark. And, and this is a place where I think the party leadership was caught flat-footed. One reason they didn't think Sanders could potentially be a, a, a serious threat to Clinton was they didn't think anybody who called themselves a socialist could possibly be competitive in American politics. And I think something they underestimated was how much of the drama and the toxicity had leached out of that term. And Sanders has kind of managed to rebrand it as it's not quite what the Tea Party did with with a certain brand of conservatism, but he's used it as a way to rebrand a more left-wing approach within the Democratic Party. You, you think back to Howard Dean, he used to talk about the Democratic wing of the Democratic Party. Sanders is in many ways, I think, speaking for that wing, but he's calling it the Democratic Socialist wing of the Democratic Party, which is actually a much more precise definition of, of this particular constituency. And it relies on, on young people, I think, not having some of these associations with the term that party elders who are, are very reflexively afraid of it do. But I think it, it also... Well, uh, I think oh, yeah, I just Sarah want some numbers to what you were saying. So Gallup did, I remember the survey Gallup did on socialism this summer, where they found that if you ask people, like, are you willing to vote for a socialist president? Um, you know, they also asked about Muslim president, um, Jewish president, a bunch of different things. They found that among 18 to 29-year-olds, 69% like said, yeah, I would vote for a socialist president. <laughs> and then you look at 65 plus, and it drops to 34%. Wow. So there's just like this, and it goes down, you know, age over age, it just decreases and decreases. So you have now young adults are twice as likely to say, like, yeah, I would vote for a socialist candidate. In, in broad terms, what does socialism come above and below in there? So socialism still ranks the lowest among all the things they pulled on, among all the age groups. This includes black president, Mormon, Catholic, evangelical, Jewish, a woman. Did they pull but atheist? They did pull atheist, and it ranks above, just slightly above among <laughs> young people and more above among old people. There's like a 25% gap uh, among young adults and their willingness to vote for a woman over a socialist and the 50 percent gap among older adults, suggesting that, you know, older adults are much more comfortable with a female president than they are with a socialist president. Well, so the, the thing is, is that there's there's a sort of like double split on the on the socialism question in the American public. Right. And so one split is if you just go like to England, you go to Germany, you go to France, you know, you go to any European country, a large share of people, like roughly half of them aren't socialists. They don't vote for the socialist party. They really dislike it because they are loyal supporters of the other political party. They are right of center people. But in all of those countries, it's just conventional that a self-identified socialist political party is a major mainstream political force. So even if you would never consider voting for the German social democrats, you also wouldn't be like shocked or scandalized by the idea that they might win the election. They're just the other political party and, and the one that you don't support. And so one thing that you see in, in America is that, you know, substantively younger people are more left wing than older people. But I think another thing that you're seeing is that better educated people are more aware 
of the nuances of what these words mean. And the younger cohort in the United States has much, much higher educational attainment. So there was a, a National Republican Campaign Committee put out a, a fundraising you know, email sort of based on Sanders. And it was like all like red flags and hammer and sickles, right? <laughs> and so that's, that's the thing that Democratic operatives on the most superficial level are like worried about, right? Is that like social democracy equals socialism equals communism equals Stalin means Bernie Sanders is sending you to the gulag. And that's like, okay, that's a, that's like a fun attack line. Uh, but it's also dumb. It's, a, it's, a, it's just a stupid thing. And, you know, sometimes incredibly stupid things work in politics. But, like, it's worth saying, like, it's really dumb. Like, Tony Blair if you ask him, we'll say that he is a socialist. The current president of France is the leader of the socialist party. And Republicans do not, absolutely do not believe that the current president of France is sending people to the gulag or that Tony Blair was the equivalent of Stalin. And when they put out emails like that, like they're just lying. They know perfectly well that they're wrong and they're just doing it because in politics, sometimes you lie. Now, separate from that is that you still might not want to vote for those guys because, like, they support high taxes and a generous welfare state right. and, and blah, blah, blah like that. And so I, I just think part of what you're seeing with Sanders is a growing post-Cold War, highly educated segment of Democrats wants to use words to mean what they mean in, like, highbrow, politically aware circles in which welfare state liberalism is – of an aligned with reformist socialism. D Dylan Matthews had a great piece for our site about the sort of box.com. Box.com, yeah. About the, the mutual evolution of European socialist parties away from Marxism and toward this kind of reformist welfare statism and the evolution of US liberalism away from classical liberalism and toward this kind of convergent point where Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have sort of different rhetorical reference points but are pushing for the exact same thing, which is like the government should pay for your health care and education. So I actually want to – I think this is a good segue. I want to talk not about Bernie Sanders' political revolution but about Hillary Clinton's political non-revolution. But before we do that, we do not live in a socialist economy. And as such, we should take a moment and thank our sponsors. Absolutely. <laughs> This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by Club W. We've all been there. You come home after a long, exhausting day at work. All you want to do is sip a glass of wine and relax. But if you haven't planned ahead, you know, you don't necessarily have anything around the home. So you go to the grocery store. You're lost in the wine aisle. You're just kind of looking at stuff. You don't know what you're doing. You find yourself picking out a bottle based on the label you don't understand. You get home. You open it up. And you realize, you know, you, you don't really like it as much as, as much as you thought you did. And it's just – it's really sort of challenging. You know, if you're very knowledgeable about wine, I'm sure you can go into a store, come away happy every time. But if you're just a kind of normal person, it's hard to even build the knowledge base that you would need to shop in an intelligent way. It can get really sort of intimidating. And with Club W, you never have to worry about being wine-free again. It's a, it's a revolutionary new wine club. It sends wine directly to your door, saving you all those trips to the grocery store. Not only does Club W send you wine, they send you wine that you're really going to love to drink. They've got an easy six-question quiz that figures out your palate, so every bottle you receive is tailored to your taste. It's the leading grape-to-glass wine revolution. They work directly with vineyards to cut out the middlemen, which saves you money, and they even offer a no-risk guarantee that you'll love what they send you. So right now, Club W is offering listeners 50% off your first order when you go to clubw.com slash weeds. So don't ever come home to a wine-free house again. Just go to clubw.com slash weeds to get 50% off your first order. That's clubw.com slash weeds. 
So I think something that's gotten a lot of attention in the primary so far is Bernie Sanders' political revolution. We've already mentioned it a couple times here on today's show. We've, we've talked about it in great detail on past episodes of The Weeds, which you can find on iTunes and subscribe to and rate highly. But one thing I think has not gotten as much attention as it probably should is Hillary Clinton's political theory, which is a much more sort of hard-nosed realism, which she tried to sell in 2008 and failed, and I think has sort of tried to sell this year and, and has failed, uh, or, or is certainly having trouble selling. You know, in 2008, you have Obama, and he pushes hope and change. He makes an argument based on compromise, the idea that many of the divisions in American life are illusory, that there is no red and blue America, that people of good faith can overcome the, the political discord and, and come together and, and make change for the better. That, I think, has been decisively disproven by his presidency. There's never been a president since we've been able to poll who's been as polarizing as Barack Obama. And I think if you listen to Obama, he knows it. He knows that the argument he made in 08 turned out to, to not be true. Hillary Clinton in 08 was very skeptical of that argument. She made fun of it. She said that Obama believes that the heavens will open and the celestial choirs will sing and we'll all get together and, and do these great things. And she mocked it. And I think that Obama, to some degree, believes Hillary Clinton was right. I believe Hillary Clinton believes Hillary Clinton was right. There was a certain amount of reporting before this election that a lot of liberals, like just on the ground, former Iowa Obama precinct organizers also believed Hillary Clinton was right. And I think this is somewhat summed up in Clinton's continuous promise to be a fighter. But on some level, what people really hate about politics is that it seems like an unending war. And Clinton's promise that, you know, she can't fix a war, she can't change the status quo, but she will do her damnedest within it to, to get the best outcome she can, is, I think, both realistic and, and deeply uninspiring. And I think one premise of the Hillary Clinton campaign this year was that Democrats had been a little bit chastened by the Obama years, that they had they had watched these kinds of big hopes come to naught. And we're going to be ready for, for Clinton's somewhat more realistic view of American politics, even if it wasn't as inspirational a view. But I think that what we've seen is, you know, Sanders came with, in my view, a frankly less politically plausible theory than Obama's. I think the political revolution, this idea that there is much less disagreement in the country than people normally think, that people are just waiting for Democrats to have sufficiently left-wing opinions, that there's this kind of silent majority who will rise up. There's a lot to like about the idea if you agree with Bernie Sanders, but but I don't think there's much to, to justify it in the numbers that, that you can see. That said, that idea, which is sort of conflictual versus Obama's more compromise-oriented vision of how to fix American politics, has also gained tremendous traction. And I think one of the questions that it raises is whether Democrats have any kind of vision of their own political future that, that is inspirational and realistic at all. Because if it's Ted Cruz or if it's um, Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio, their vision of the political future, their vision of how they'll make American politics work is they will come into office, they will have a Republican House, a Republican Senate, a Republican Supreme Court, and they'll pass whatever the fuck they want to pass. And that is a completely realistic vision of how their presidency might go. I mean, they'll be bounded by public opinion. They'll be bounded by certain interest group demands, but they will have a tremendous amount of leeway, much like Obama did in 2009 in 2010 to push their agenda. But a Democrat is very likely to face a Republican House, a Republican uh, Senate, a Republican Supreme Court, and Republican state control and is going to have very little actual room for movement. Into that space has come Bernie Sanders with an unrealistic but inspirational view of what to do about that and Hillary Clinton with a, a realistic but deeply pessimistic view, which on some level – and this is a point you've made before, Matt – she has a, an analytically sound theory, but not actually an answer. And I think this is a, a really core 
problem for the Hillary Clinton campaign. If you do not enjoy the kind of war of inches, it is Barack Obama's second term. Hillary Clinton just promises more of that. And I think her promise is actually on the merits correct. I think it's basically what Bernie Sanders would be stuck in too. But I don't think she has figured out a way to sell it. And, and I'm very curious if you guys think it can even be sold. I took a dive over the weekend into my my sources in the corrupt nexus of Democratic Party centrist politics and and Wall Street finance, and I came out of that dive with actually an interesting perspective. And what people in in that kind of universe, pro Hillary people, certainly not pro Sanders people, not working in politics right now, but possibly going to get back into it soon. What they said was that Hillary's problem is that she actually does have a vision for policy change, and she just can't admit what it is. Because the vision is that we've actually seen a calmed down Republican caucus in Congress that is willing to do compromises and deals on various issues, and that if they lose another election, they are going to be even more sort of calm, but also secure in their position up there and ready to come to the table. And that Hillary Clinton after this sort of eight-year Obama span of big progressive change and big backlash to that change is going to finally deliver on things like business tax reform, on a trade and investment partnership with the European Union, the sort of thing that you saw in Bill Clinton's second term, you know, not the sort of like 1995, like triangulation hard pivot, but things like they did a big telecommunications law overhaul that, among other things, gave us the TiVo um, and some changes in how cable prices are. Thank you, Ed Markey. Yes, yes. Ed Markey's greatest, greatest work. You know, but that- Senator Ed Markey. But that that things like the fix to the disability program would be the model that we might even see a revisiting, and this will truly horrify liberals, of a grand bargain on fiscal policy. And that this makes sense. I mean, it it may not work. Obviously, many people have hoped for a sort of fever break deal-making period will arrive, and, and then it hasn't. But it certainly could. There's certainly evidence that 2015, Congress sort of got back to productivity. So it's a, it's a questionable theory of political change, but I think a plausible one, one that is more plausible than Bernie Sanders' political revolution, but one that cuts against what Clinton would like to pitch is that we all want the same thing here, guys. We're just having an argument about how to realistically achieve it. I have a more realistic, you know, theory of politics. I'm more electable. Like, we're all on the same team. And and there's a lot to that, right? In, in You're saying to the Democratic primary Right, to voters. the Democratic yes. primary voters. But the reality is that in some important ways, there is a real factional split in the Democratic Party. There are Many Democrats, I believe including Hillary Clinton, although I can't read her mind, but certainly including Barack Obama, certainly including most of his economic policy team, who strongly believe that making cuts to Social Security and Medicare spending would be a good thing to do as long as it could be done in the context of a fair overall deal. And there are lots of Democrats on Capitol Hill, certainly including Bernie Sanders, who really do not believe that. There is a very serious disagreement about trade policy. Is this split amount to like earth shattering? We should like tear ourselves into pieces? Like maybe not, but but it's a real difference of opinion. And it's one in which there's a plausible story as to how Hillary Clinton is going to work with the Republican Congress to do things that liberals don't really like that much. And 
you know, you could sort of recalibrate this whole debate as to like Hillary actually has a plausible theory of change, just one liberals may not like, whereas Bernie Sanders has a plausible theory of gridlock. Right, which is that Bernie Sanders is not going to sign any laws that House Republicans are willing to pass. You're going you're to write this and put it on our website? Very possibly. Wonderful. Yes. <laughs> By the time this is out, it'll be on. <laughs> and you remember thinking back to 2008, right? I mean, we could have done – the universe produced a bajillion hot takes on Hillary Clinton's theory of change versus Barack Obama's theory of change. It turns out that Obama's theory of change was on the one hand – totally wrong. And on the other hand, it was completely inconsequential that he was wrong. Because when he became president, I don't know exactly what he thought when he was giving those speeches. But one way or the other, when it didn't work out that way, he just did the other thing, <laughs> like, which is fine. He's a smart guy. Like, he's got a good team. Right. And um, I think that's what's exciting. Like, so you look at like Obama, like, passes a major health care reform law. And like, I don't think Democrats actually care that much about Compromise. I think they're really excited that Obama is the first president, you know, in decades who was mm -hmm. able to pass that. And you look at that and you say, like, that's the kind of thing that I want in a candidate that, like, I don't know if there's a lot of thinking through the different forces of gridlock. But at the end of the day, you just kind of want someone who's going to do this big cool thing. I think I might be right, although I would just offer two kind of addendums to that. One is that. While I agree that liberals today really like Obamacare, I remember the passage of Obamacare as being a moment of really like almost like maximal liberal dissatisfaction with Obama. They, they felt that he had given away too much. There was no public option. He had cut all these deals with the pharmaceutical industry and the insurance industry and the medical device industry. There's a lot of very, very deep anger over his embrace of transactional politics after he ran promising a more straightforward, a more transformational politics. Now, as you say, liberals were ultimately on board, including Bernie Sanders, who voted for the bill. But part of the Bernie Sanders critique in, in this campaign is that Obama sold out on Obamacare. Obama had to make those compromises when he had 59 Democrats in the Senate, and for some of that period, 60 Democrats in the Senate, and a big Democratic majority in the House. Hillary Clinton is probably going to have to make compromises with, let's say, if I already guess right now, something like 51 or 52 Republicans in the Senate and a large Republican House majority. And so, you know, I actually very, very much agree that this is what Clinton would do, right? Bill Clinton also had to deal with the Republican House they, uh, and Republican Senate. They know how to do this. They're actually, as a political team, reasonably good at working with people who really don't like them. Clinton was good at working with Republicans in the Senate in 2000 when she became – when she was a senator. But the deals are going to be directionally very different, right, than Obamacare. Obamacare was a compromise between different factions of the Democratic Party. And Hillary Clinton is going to be compromising with Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell. And I think that a lot of the issue space there is going to be not just unexciting, but, but in, in, in some ways actively objectionable to Democrats. I mean, it will be things like entitlement reform, you know, if they can ever get to an agreement on that, which maybe not, but definitely big trade deals like um, – Clinton is now against the Trans-Pacific Partnership trade deal, but I think that if she had been president, uh, she would have negotiated and signed something almost exactly like it. And I like will it. say it's telling. So Trans-Pacific Partnership should get wrapped up as a legislative matter before the next president is inaugurated. So in a sense, what Hillary Clinton thinks about it doesn't make a difference. She has not come out against the ongoing transatlantic trade and investment partnership negotiations, which are not going to be wrapped up anytime soon. But that's like the trade issue that will land on her desk if she becomes president. She hasn't said anything about th things like that. And yeah, I don't think anyone believes that Hillary Clinton has like deep convictions against these 
Speaking of what will land on the next president's desk, what if that president is a Republican? But before that, what if our show has some sponsors? This week's episode of The Weeds is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. If you listen to the show, you probably love to learn things, and we do too. And that's why we're really excited about the Great Courses Plus video learning service. It gives you unlimited access to this huge library of Great Courses lecture series in a ton of fascinating subjects, history, science, practical stuff like cooking, and they're giving our listeners an incredible opportunity right now. You can watch one of their popular courses on the fundamentals of photography absolutely free. Fundamentals of Photography is taught by a professional photographer and National Geographic fellow named Joel Sartori. It gives you just sort of great tips and tools on how to be a better photographer, how to, how to see like a photographer, how to frame your shots correctly, how to use the light correctly. It's, it's really cool. So for a limited time, The Great Courses Plus is offering our listeners a chance to stream this course, Fundamentals of Photography. It's a $235 value and hundreds of other courses for free. But this free offer is only available for a limited time, so hurry. you got to go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds, and check it out. The Republicans had one of these caucus outcomes that I think drives logically-minded people insane, which is that Ted Cruz finished in first place, Donald Trump finished narrowly behind him in second place, and Marco Rubio finished narrowly behind Trump in third place. And so that counts as a big win for Marco Rubio, a, I guess, kind of nice for Ted Cruz, and for some reason a devastating defeat for Donald Trump, even though Trump did better than Rubio. And uh, Andrew Prokop has a great piece on Vox.com explaining the sort of baffling social construction of Iowa caucus results um, in which it all becomes about not Iowa's delegates, because Iowa doesn't have many delegates and they allocate them proportionally, but about sort of what it says about you momentum-wise. And so basically, by not winning in Iowa, Trump loses some steam, loses some momentum, possibly loses his sheen as a winner. And by doing a lot better than the other establishment guys in Iowa, Marco Rubio further demonstrates that out of that crop of people, he is the one with some real juice, the one that Republicans should unite behind if they want to beat Trump. Cruz is um, still, I would just kind of say, in this slightly no man's land where his polling in Iowa was very strong and he, he might do well in some southern states, but he doesn't have Trump's sort of mass base in the media and also doesn't have real kind of party support. So that's that's how third place winds up looking like a like a win for Rubio. Although it's I too find it very frustrating. It it seems to me that Marco Rubio is still in third place and, and kind of might lose. Well let me let me make the argument for why people are, are giving Marco Rubio some juice here. One is that on some level, Rubio's running against, at this point in the primary, Kasich and Bush and um, Chris Christie and other players who are, who are competing for that moderate lane, more, more establishment-oriented lane in the party. And the idea is that if he can come out of Iowa with a head of steam and shut them out in New Hampshire, they're going to leave the race pretty quickly. And their money and their support is, in the theory of Marco Rubio, backers going to go to Marco Rubio. And so all of a sudden, Marco Rubio is going to go up in the polls by, let's say, yep. 10 points or something. But also just have, you know, the sort of entire weaponry of the Republican Party, of its media establishment, of its sort of staffing talent, all of it, you know, its endorsements from elected officials coming in behind him. The, the idea is that you are seeing a path for a very strong Marco Rubio candidacy two weeks from now. 
not so much in Iowa. The other is that Donald Trump is coming a bit back down to earth. And I think something that has been going on quietly, and I don't know if it's true, I think that Marco Rubio's backers believe Marco Rubio can win a duel with Ted Cruz. I think they they believe that Rubio is conservative enough, but simultaneously much less objectionable both to, to Republican Party elites and to some degree probably to voters once some of the more unpopular parts of Ted Cruz's platform come out and, and we should talk about them. But Trump, I think nobody – understood what to do with him. And so far, it had looked like he could just defy the laws of political gravity endlessly. And he would always, no matter what tactic major Republicans took against him, somehow come out ahead of them. And the fact that that's not happening, the fact that it's looking you know, more like Trump might begin to, to, to float back down to earth, again, may not happen, but, but that's how it looked to people, has given them confidence that the race they believed they would have will ultimately reassert itself. And that Rubio will be able to consolidate this establishment lane and possibly even Trump will exist as a gadfly trying to take down Ted Cruz as Marco Rubio gathers steam and and actually ultimately help Rubio win the primary. I'll just note, while I think it is unlikely, there is some outside chance that at the end of all this, we could have um, Marco Rubio winning the Republican nomination and Hillary Clinton win the Democratic nomination. And so for all the talk of party weakness, for all the craziness of the primary, it will go in almost exactly the way you would have predicted. Great for web traffic, though. Oh, a disaster. (laughs) But I think, you know, what we're seeing with Trump and like why you think about this as a loss, I think it was a piece you wrote. Yeah, there's a piece you wrote, Ezra, that quoted, I think it was Joe Trippi saying, you know, at some point people vote and they make a decision. But one of the things we were seeing in the polling earlier is that Trump supporters were more than Rubio supporters, more than Cruz supporters saying, yes, I'm 100 percent sure I'm going to vote for this person, that, you know, they seemed more committed and possibly, and obviously this is the first caucus, and we have a lot of election contests coming up, but we're seeing a bit of backing off there, that at some point people think about who do I want to be president, who do I think is a shot at winning the presidency, and something changes. But it, it's felt, and a lot of people have you know, expected that to happen a lot sooner than it has, and predictions that it will happen kind of have tamped down as Trump has lasted a lot longer than expected. But I think there has been in the background kind of this expectation that at some point people will decide that people will have to vote and they'll make up their minds in a way that does not favor Trump. No one has yeah. known. It's very hard to look at historical elections or look at something to say, like, that's the moment that it's going to happen. So yeah, what me, Trippy me... said, which also is a good point, was that vote and Trippy uh, ran Howard Dean's campaign. So he watched this happen in real time. And he said, the thing that happens in elections is voters become more pragmatic the closer they get to the ballot box. And there are different mechanisms for that. Something I think happened with Trump is that he had no ground game at all. He had basically no campaign to speak of. And so even if he did have all these supporters who are 100 percent sure they would vote for him, they actually didn't come to vote uh, is another possibility of what happened to Trump here. And so he really underperformed. And I would say this is a place where – You see one reason it is sometimes important to be a politician who has run campaigns and has some support from the party establishment because Donald Trump actually doesn't really know how to run a political campaign. He eventually did hire reasonably late in the game some some decent Iowa staffers, but they clearly did not build him a serious Iowa campaign machine. I think he picked up Rick Perry's Iowa. There was an amazing anecdote in The Times. We'll put the article in show notes about one day his his ground staff decided it was too cold to go canvas in Iowa. I think it was in Davenport. They just decided to stay 
in the office, which is not a great Iowa January <laughs> and, ground game. And this to me is sort of a, a little bit of a the Trump candidacy in miniature, where being a deal maker is just not enough. The thing that Trump believes is going to power him through everything is just not enough. It isn't enough to win actual elections, but even it, but if he somehow did win the elections. It also is not enough to be president, that the presidency requires a lot of skills around coalition building, around understanding how the bureaucracy works, around knowing what your limits are, around just the, the retail work of politicians, around a lot of things that are not exciting but but sort of have to be done as just part of the work of politics. And something that longtime politicians learn and, and are tested on is whether they can do these kinds of other softer skills, which are not the skills you see so much on the campaign trail. But again, Trump has never been tested there. So I do think one thing we're seeing a bit is Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio are really professional politicians with professional operations. That doesn't get you everywhere, right? Jeb Bush is also a professional politician with a professional operation, and he spent a tremendous amount of money to lose terribly in Iowa. But I do think that if you are a candidate who's been able to generate enthusiasm, translating that enthusiasm into votes is something that takes skills and it takes operations and it takes staffing talent and it takes a realism about what is required to, to run and win a campaign. So let, let me make the, the bear case on Marco Rubio here, right? Here's the thing. Everything Ezra just said. But just say that again. Donald Trump and Marco Rubio just went head to head in Iowa in a state that's a caucus state, in a state where we know it puts an extreme premium on organization. You read any coverage of Sanders versus Clinton or of Clinton versus Obama, and people are talking organization, organization, organization. Organization matters most in Iowa. Iowa is the state where organization matters. You got to get organized. It's so hard to get people to caucus, right? Trump doesn't do any of that (laughs) at all. And not only does he not do any of that, but his core constituency is less educated people who have a lower proclivity to turn out. It's people who have more weak partisan attachments who have a lesser proclivity to turn out. And his strongest states, when you look at like that big New York Times graphic on like where's Trumpies, they're in the south and they're in the northeast. So Trump is in a weak region for him, in a state where the rules are rigged against him, in a state where Trump didn't do any of the work that you need to do to win. And he beat Marco Rubio. Rubio <laughs> to beat a fair point. Trump in New York or to beat Trump in Georgia needs to dramatically improve on his performance in Iowa somehow, right? You're, he's going to go into regions that are more Trump-friendly, into elections where the rules are more Trump-friendly, and he can't narrowly lose – all of them. Narrowly losing to Trump in Iowa wins him in this expectations game. I mean, it does. I don't want to underplay what Rubio achieved there because it does real work for him in terms of finally getting Jeb out of there, you, you know, this other kind of stuff. But Rubio, just in a flip side of the the sort of the Iowa situation for the Democrats, right? Like Sanders, it was good. Like he beat Hillary Clinton to the draw. But also we know that this was like an all-white state, right? To actually win, Sanders has to do better than that in the future. To actually win, Rubio has to do better than this in the future. But it's not obvious what about the future contests help him there unless he can get the Ted Cruz people to come go vote for him. But he actually needs 
Cruz to either get out of the race or to really, really fade. Because what Ted Cruz has in his camp is super duper 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 conservative people, people who are like really way into conservative ideology. And if you're way into conservative ideology, you are going to notice that Donald Trump is not that he may share certain things in common with you uh, in spirit, on immigration policy, hostility to Republican leadership. But Ted Cruz has spent his whole life from college forward being like a a disciple of the conservative movement. And Donald Trump seems to have made this stuff up last week. Uh, But how does Rubio cause that to happen, especially given that Cruz finished first in Iowa. Now, we don't know what's going to happen, you know, in the future, but you can easily imagine a situation in which Ted Cruz gets on a plane, heads down to South Carolina, other southern states, keeps maintaining what we saw his support was in Iowa, which is evangelicals, regular churchgoers, people with a high level of connection to conservative politics keep voting for Cruz. People who like Donald Trump, working class, more secular Republicans, people who are not that ideologically sophisticated keep liking Donald Trump. And Rubio keeps having what he has, which is this sort of non-constituency of people who are like neither here nor there in terms of the Trump versus Cruz demographics. And that there's a In Washington, D.C., there's a thing that lumps Trump and Cruz together as the non-establishment candidates and makes it seem like they're competing for each other. But if you look at the demographics of who's supporting them, they're actually quite different. And so Rubio's fighting this kind of two-front war. He could win, right? He could push one or the other guy out of the race, pick up the other guy's supporters, and then defeat the second guy. But that's a, an inherently sort of tough position to be in. You know, he's kind of like the like the the Germany in World War One in this race. And if Trump and Cruz can both stick in it, then, you know, Rubio's got a problem. But so uh, I think everything you say makes total sense. But I do think Donald Trump has been by far the best natural candidate in the Republican race. But Ted Cruz has run by far the best campaign. I mean, it has become common political lingo to talk about an establishment lane, a conservative lane. That is Ted Cruz's description of the race that everybody has just over time picked up. That was his strategic analysis. It was said by a super PAC people. It was then leaked him saying it in a, in a tape to The New York Times. And now everybody just talks about it broadly. Cruz is the only Republican who figured out how to manage Donald Trump's rise without absolutely freaking out or getting destroyed by him or or otherwise kind of just getting run over. He had apparently the best ground game by a wide margin in Iowa. And he has had for, for some time now a really deep understanding of the currents among conservative base voters. And so something that I am not sure of is exactly the boundaries of his level of support. You know, Rubio, to me, and, and the reason, you know, a lot of people in the media give are sort of looking for any opportunity to say Rubio Rubio did well and are, are so ready to to sort of unleash the, the Rubio has momentum narrative is that Rubio seems by far the most plausible Republican nominee for a lot of different reasons, a Republican who would do the best in the general election. I think Ted Cruz is of the Republicans, possibly including Trump, the likeliest to lose in a general election. But even that being said... Cruz is running a very, very, very good campaign in the Republican primary. And it and it isn't clear to me that he can't, you know, really pick up a lot of people. And and you were talking about what happens if, if Ted Cruz drops out, you know, for Rubio. But what happens if eventually Donald Trump begins to to fade or drop out? 
Rubio has really made a point of trying to be gentle and kind and generous to the Trump support and the Trump theory. He is much more anti-establishment than Rubio. He is, you know, while they're they're having a very esoteric debate over this, he's more anti-immigration uh, than Rubio. And I think it is entirely possible that he could pick up a lot of Trump support, but also that he can just fundamentally out-organize Rubio, who's known for not having spent very much on ground game and has really been relying on on advertisements, which maybe is doing him some good, but certainly not the good they did Ted Cruz. But then I think that all circles back to the idea before. At some point, people become pragmatic and they think about, you know, do I want do I want to elect a president in 2016 for my party and who is most likely to get us there? And, and that leads me to like kind of get back to like the boring general media consensus, like to, of expecting a Rubio candidacy and not expecting a Cruz candidacy. One reason I would give Rubio a little more um, a little more credit for his third place win is that there's some there's some <laughs> third place win is an amazing win. political accusation. Yes, it was not paid by the campaign for that. Is that there's a lot of other candidates who have small amounts of votes, but who you could easily see their voters eventually like coalescing over to Rubio. So you have. Kasich, you have the Jeb, like these are not contenders. I think Jeb ended up spending like $3,000 a person in Iowa to get <laughs> votes. So he's clearly on his way out of here. So you can at least, the Cruz-Trump dynamic is a little hard to um, to gauge because they're so different, because they have really different types of supporters and we don't know where they're all going to gravitate. But then you have like maybe this 10% of the vote or so that you can really easily see moving over to Rubio. They can almost like count on going there. So if you add all of that up, that makes this idea of like this third place win seem like a little more logical than just, you know, splicing out. Let me me push one thing on this, though, because I do think this question of voters becoming more pragmatic, right? Because we were talking about this in terms of Trippy and and, and Trippy, the analogy he was using there is voters went into Iowa seeming like they would support Howard Dean and instead they went to John Kerry. Right. And so it was like it was Iowa where the pragmatism took hold. But but here, Ted Cruz and Donald Trump got more than 50 percent of the vote. And, and right. The, but I think like Democratic elsewhere primary. you see the pragmatism taking hold later. Like if you remember Santorum won Iowa in 2012 and Huckabee won in 2008. And over time you see this gravitation towards the more centrist candidate. So I think you can find like analogies that show. See, yeah, the I don't think those races later. show that, though. I think Rick Santorum would have been a much stronger general election candidate than Mitt Romney. He just wasn't the candidate that Republicans wanted. Just like this year, I mean, I think John Kasich would be a much stronger general election candidate than Marco Rubio, but he's not the candidate the Republican establishment wants. I mean, the Republican Party is very committed to extremely regressive policies on taxes and the welfare state. And what they get in election after election is not the most pragmatic nominee, but is the candidate who is most committed to being non-pragmatic about that. They are trying to find people who will not say, you know what, I would rather be president than insist on gigantic tax cuts for the wealthy. So Marco Rubio definitely wants giant tax cuts for the wealthy, and, and that's what people like about him. But I don't think it's obvious that he's the pragmatic choice. I don't John think... Kasich also wants giant tax cuts for the wealthy. Probably. But he wants to expand Medicaid. So. Um, <laughs> at any rate, I don't think it's totally obvious that Chris Christie drops out, right? Clearly, some of his supporters are going to say, I was a Chris Christie establishment lane kind of guy, so now I'm going to go for Marco Rubio because he's still in the establishment lane. Uh, but there's got to be some other people who are voting for Chris Christie because Chris Christie is in the angry, affect, northeastern, not super religious-seeming guy lane. 
And Donald Trump is the other guy who's in that lane. John Kasich is in the establishment lane, but he's also in the soft on government health care programs lane. Donald Trump is the guy who's in that. There's also, it should just be noted because we've not mentioned them yet, but but Ben Carson and Carly Fiorina. Yeah, Carly Fiorina is in a we need a business person to fix this lane. So is Donald Trump. Ben Carson is in a we need a guy from outside the system to save us. Donald Trump is also in that lane. It certainly could be the case. Really complicated um, freeway interchange here. Right. But that's (laughs) all of which is to say. It's certainly possible that Marco Rubio could pick up the support of everyone who is not currently supporting Donald Trump. But I don't know that it's clear that he will. I mean, you have to have a real contest and see what see what happens with regard to those things. I think the most interesting question in this race is what does Ted Cruz really want out of it if he starts to be struggling, right? If Rubio pulls ahead of Cruz— But Trump is still number one. And Cruz is there with a meaningful level of support in number three. Does Cruz do what the sort of steward of conservatism that he likes to market himself as would do, which is drop out and endorse Marco Rubio for, like, the good of the conservative movement? Or does he do what the anti-establishment maverick that he often seems to be would do, which is drop out, endorse Donald Trump, maybe cut some kind of deal to be vice president. Those are two very different ways can, can to do it. Can you be vice president when you're Canadian? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. I don't have like a ton of insight into what really lurks in Ted Cruz's heart and things like that. But ultimately, to beat Trump, Rubio is going to need to consolidate not just whatever is in the establishment lane, but he needs the Ted Cruz votes. He needs the true conservative votes. And maybe he can get them, but maybe he can't. And that's why it's like fun to see events actually play out. But but to go back to a point Sarah made, because I, I do think it, the pragmatism question has political force with Ted Cruz. And this is something you've written about. And, and I just wanted to get you to actually recap this argument a little bit, because I don't think people realize what that Ted Cruz is not actually running on just a standard Republican agenda. I mean, you talked about the candidates most when you give tax cuts to the rich, but there's a, a way those candidates do that. And Ted Cruz is not just giving a tax cut to the rich. He's doing more than that. Yes. Ted Cruz has an exciting plan. <laughs> T- T- Ted Cruz has a tax proposal that he characterizes as a 16% business flat tax that in practice is more like a 19% federal sales tax. It differs from a federal sales tax a little bit in its technical implementation, but it also differs in that it would be charged on everything, not just retail purchases, but also services that you buy. So, you know, like you get a plumber, you're going to have to pay this 19% tax, uh, healthcare, presumably like school tuition. I mean, he's not fully clear on how this works, but to make his math adds up, it has to be a 19% tax. And the more you cut out of it, the higher that tax goes. So the way he maths it out, it would be 19% on literally everything. So this has not been subject to a ton of scrutiny. I did see one funny mailer that uh, Rubio's super PAC is sending out in New Hampshire about this, and it shows a a picture of Ted Cruz, uh, but with like a, a maple leaf cutout. Um, and it talks about – it doesn't talk about how Ted Cruz is Canadian. It talks about how this is a 
Canadian style tax that Ted Cruz wants to create. Which, you and know, it is, it it is, is. as fact, a Canadian, I would say is accurate. Yeah. It is, in fact, true. Um, so <laughs> this is in Canada, they call this the GST or yes. goods and services tax. And uh, but, in, but just to make the big point yeah. here, because before we get deep in the weeds of how the tax works, uh, we don't want to talk about the weeds of policy here. No, no, no. I just want to <laughs> I, I want to structure this conversation a bit. Ted Cruz doesn't just have a plan to cut taxes on the rich. He's a plan to raise them on the poor and middle class. Yes. And particularly, I would say, on the elderly. Right. There's a real sort of problem here, right, which is, you know, you can have a tax system that's based on wage earnings or you can have a tax system that's based on consumption. And if you do an um, economics model, you know, if you take a, like – medium level economics course, you will learn that a payroll tax and a consumption tax are equivalent on an infinite time horizon. Uh, but the problem is, is that actual human beings don't live on an infinite time horizon. And if you're like 69, you've already been paying wage taxes your whole life, and now you're retired. And so now Ted Cruz is going to come around and you're going to pay this new sales tax. And in, in exchange, quote unquote, there's going to be lower taxes on uh, working and investment, but you're not working and investing by the time you're old. So even if you're rich, but you're old, Ted Cruz is raising your taxes. So this is A, a politically tough sell. B, it's particularly tough for Republicans because there's so many old people in the Republican Party. And normally they try to take their policies. They take sort of conservative abstract policy ideas, and then they try to tweak them to be more friendly to the interests of elderly people. But Cruz's plan is like the opposite of that. It's the most elderly person hostile version of this conservative idea of a, of a wage tax. So it's going to be, a, I think, a tricky for him if he has to address this in a sort of specific way. I have not seen a ton of focus on it on the debates yet. There's been a little bit of interchange between it. Rubio is starting to hit him on it in New Hampshire. In a general election, I think it's just obviously toxic. I mean, I cannot imagine a worse look for the Republican Party to put forward than we want to cut wealthy people's taxes in order to raise taxes on middle class. And in order, just it should be noted, this is paired with tremendous cuts to the social safety net. And also it increases the deficit by just a ton of money. There's nothing, if you put everything together, it is an almost unbelievably unpopular set of policy positions. It is very consistent internally in its way, but it's a place where Ted Cruz is actually offering something that is different than what the standard issue sort of conservative politician today offers, right? It is not what Mitt Romney ran on in 2012. It is not what John Kasich and Marco Rubio and Jeb Bush, who, who have, you know, reasonably Chris Christie, who have reasonably similar policy platforms are running on now. Ted Cruz is, is honestly offering something different that is toxic in a way, consistent to rhetoric around makers and takers and the 47 percent and so forth, but but toxic to a general electorate in a way that I don't know that Republicans fully appreciate it yet because Ted Cruz has not been front runner in a way that it has been vetted. But the better he does, the more this is going to become the issue of the primary. If he wins the primary, I mean, you can say what you want about Hillary Clinton and, you know, candidate effects or whatever. But I don't think there's a candidate they would prefer to run against over Ted Cruz. I think he is the most target rich environment for them. And you'll notice Democrats never criticize Ted Cruz. Right. <laughs> they, they, they think it would be – they got – you know, they sort of like to troll the whole Republican Party around Donald Trump. They did lots of hits on Rubio and Jeb. They have nothing to say about Ted Cruz because they're going to – Just a gonna, Canadian guy making his way in the world. <laughs> you know, it's a fresh face. They're <laughs> excited to But now to that we, you know, we've talked about both of them, it almost – the 
Cruz plan almost makes me like think back to Sanders, where it's so hard for me to see like if Cruz comes in, but this is his like political revolution in a way. Like this oh, is how yeah. he wants to restructure things. It's like impossible to. See. It, it, it suggests a lot of gridlock in a Cruz administration if this is like his plan. It's very hard for me to see Republicans on the Hill getting behind this type of plan. Well, I mean, in some ways, the I choice think. America needs is the, the Sanders-Cruz one, choice. You, because, you got one revolution or the other. <laughs> because they have precisely opposite but highly symmetrical mm-hmm. views of what's going on here. Like, Ted Cruz also believes in a political revolution. Ted Cruz also believes that the problem in American politics is that there is a giant conservative majority out there. But Republicans have been bought off by the establishment, corrupted by their crony capitalism. You know, they, they've wanted to appeal to a liberal media and so they've just never given these people the thing they've always wanted to vote for. And so Ted Cruz has super right wing policies that he thinks are going to help show like this is a path to liberty. As he said, we polled both a version of a political revolution to protect liberty and a political revolution to redistribute wealth. And Ted Cruz believes he has running a political revolution to protect liberty, Bernie Sanders to, to redistribute wealth. And if you put those against each other, it would be a very fascinating election. I would be very excited. Here's where I, I do think it's different, though. I think Ted Cruz would really struggle to win a general election, but if he did win a general election, I think Republicans would pass something along the lines of his tax proposal because the whole reason Republicans don't want to embrace that is that they think it would cause them to lose the election. But if they did win anyway, I think they would do it. It's roughly in line with the kinds of ideas on tax policy that Republicans have. Sanders has, I think, a much bigger problem than that. I think that if Sanders won the nomination and then won the general election and then unexpectedly Democrats got a majority in the House of Representatives and then really unexpectedly Democrats got 60 seats in the Senate, they still wouldn't do his single-payer health care plan. That there's like a double squared level of unrealism that I think if you look at, we mentioned a a bunch of times Elizabeth Warren in connection to Sanders. Uh, Also, you look at someone like Al Franken from Minnesota. Uh, These are very liberal senators, but they have opposed the medical device tax in Obamacare because they represent states that are concentrations of that industry. I don't think those guys would go for the kind of cutbacks in you know, yeah, we but let me give Ted Cruz less credit and Bernie Sanders a little bit more than I think think you are here. I think if Ted Cruz won, yes, he would definitely pass a version of his tax plan. But I think it would be a very scaled down version. I think Republicans will look at the possibility of passing a national sales tax and blanch. I think he would get a bunch of tax cuts, but much in the way that George W. Bush had to scale back his tax cuts, he would end up with something that was, was heavily compromised. And Sanders, too. I mean, something about Sanders is that Unlike Ted Cruz, he's actually not uncompromising. Ted Cruz, one very notable feature of his political style is he does not compromise. He will shut down the government. He will breach the debt ceiling. He will do anything possible not to compromise. The real Bernie Sanders is a much more practical politician. Sanders is a very pragmatic pragmatic legislator. He voted for Obamacare. He's good at getting amendments. He he will create unusual coalitions. I mean, uh, I think about politicians on sort of a two-dimensional axis where like one is ideology and another is, uh, is, is affect or political style. And I think that Cruz is very ideological, but also is a very uncompromising political style, whereas Bernie Sanders is very ideological, but has a much more pragmatic, compromising political style. I agree. I also agree. Fun episode of The Weeds, y'all. Bringing people back together. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for indulging my desire to talk news of the day as opposed to, to esoteric policy this week. We'll be back to esoteric policy next week. 
um, after you all send me a bunch of email about how pissed you are at me. And with suggestions for future yeah. subjects. Yeah, exactly. So thank you all for listening. It's been another great episode of The Weeds. You can email us at weeds at box.com. Don't complain about the fact that there was no weedsy policy discussion because we're aware of that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, thanks to our sponsors, to our producer, AC Valdez, and uh, we'll see you next week. <laughs>